0: Lower middle market businesses are a vastly underappreciated and undervalued space with tremendous potential for returns. Unfortunately, finding and acquiring a company can be tiring and filled with inefficiencies, wasted time, and ultimately dead ends. But our sponsor, PrivSource, grew out of the need to navigate through the chaotic waters of the lower middle market and help buyers source high-quality acquisition opportunities. PrivSource provides a fully vetted M&A deal platform with hundreds of live engagements thus far. Unlike other M&A platforms, PrivSource fully vets all members and deals to ensure they meet high-quality standards. They also never charge a referral or success fee on any deal that is sourced through the platform. The platform sources deals from a variety of industries and verticals, with coverage in the U.S. and Canadian markets. Deals range in size from $5 to $15 million in revenue and $1 to $5 million in EBITDA. If you're seeking to acquire and operate a lower middle market business and want to see more deals and pay less fees, check out PrivSource. As a listener of the podcast, you can save 50% off your first month by going to PrivSource.com slash circle. That's PrivSource.com slash circle. Dan, welcome to the Circle of Competence podcast. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. Well, why don't we why don't we level set and maybe take two or three minutes and give the give your background to the audience so they have a little bit of context about who you are, what you've done, and we'll jump into in, into the questions after that.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I'm an entrepreneur, uh, an investor based in New York City. Uh, I've been working in startups uh, in New York for little over 10 years now, um, started out working in some early stage companies, joined a firm called Prehype, which is one of the early venture studios in New York City, uh, which has built businesses uh, like uh, BarkBox, for example, which is about to go public through SPAC. Um, I worked on a bunch of different businesses uh, while I was at Prehype. We helped to uh, build new digital businesses with big companies. So I did work with News Corp, Castrol, Unilever, GE, a bunch of big companies and from uh, From pre-hype, I started a company called Managed by Q. Um, So we built a platform for companies to run their office operations. That business sort of went through multiple incarnations. Uh, We built a large vertically integrated service company. We built a marketplace for commercial services, everything from cleaning and maintenance to HVAC administrative staffing, uh, employee benefits. Uh, And then the sort of last chapter, we built a set of software as a service tools for the office manager. managing employee requests, inventory and asset management, uh, the services marketplace, vendor management. We sold that business um, in 2019 to WeWork uh, and and following the acquisition, uh, I joined the executive team at WeWork running uh, corporate development and ventures. So I ran uh, uh, M&A partnerships and the uh, creator fund, which is a $200 million, uh, mostly series A fund, investing in the future of work. Uh, and then also oversaw the portfolio of non-core businesses uh, at WeWork, uh, which included some of the acquired companies like uh, Meetup, Conductor, Flatiron School, and then Managed by Q, which was the company that I built and sold to them. Um, I left WeWork uh, pretty much the same uh, the same week that that Adam the the of two thousand and uh, what year is it nineteen? Um, and since then, have been focused on angel investing about. 80 ish companies I've invested in and then have, have had the privilege to work with a bunch of the folks to who had previously worked for me at managed by Q and are now building businesses of their own. And so ad, advising a handful of companies, um, mostly focused on, uh, uh, vertical software marketplaces, sort of in the same, same domain that I was operating previously. Uh, um, I've said a lot, but that's sort of uh, that's sort of my story.
2: No, that's awesome. Um, thank you for that <clears throat> overview. I think, uh, I want to dive into a little bit of each of that, each of those things in this conversation. But um, just to start, uh, let's let's start with maybe managed by Q. Uh, so you were at PreHype. I think uh, I saw that you were an entrepreneur in residence there. And then I'd love to hear about how the idea came to you, and then kind of where it went from idea to actual like building a company.
1: Yeah. So I would say one of the the big benefits to being at PreHype is all of the folks who were working there sort of like a loosely banded group of product people. And so my partner at Prehype was a guy named Saman uh, Rachmanian. Um, he's actually since founded a company called Roman, a direct-to-consumer rents health business. Um, so he was uh, my partner at Prehype and actually was was the guy who brought me on and, and helped me work on the first couple projects sort of under his tutelage at Prehype. And really the genesis for Managed by Q was centered around the need for uh, a new management company for his uh, for his apartment building, which was sort of like a small- scale condo building in uh, in Carroll Gardens. Um I had just moved into a low income co-op in South Williamsburg. um, and we both were kind of having the same issues with our buildings. Um, and we kind of uh, iterated on what would sort of the ideal state of sort of this uh, futuristic take on property management look like. And that was sort of the first version of managed by Q. we spent. Uh, a very miserable six weeks pitching to condo and co-op boards in in Lower Manhattan, which are uh, not a great customer for a number of reasons. Uh, and we we pretty quickly pivoted from from uh, residential, where uh, it really wasn't anyone's problem to solve, um, to a commercial, where you had an office manager whose job it was to solve this problem, took pride in their work, and and so we found a much more engaged and excited customer there. And that was sort of the beginning of. The story. And then in terms of like how we got it off the ground, um, Samana and I both had design backgrounds. And so really when we were kind of pitching in those early days uh, everything we were pitching was based on sort of like uh, a design of a prototype of what the product would look like and how it would work and how it was priced. And we were really able to sell against sort of just like basically a sales deck. Uh, some people might call it vaporware, uh, but we basically were selling on the promise that, you know, this service and this product is going to be ready on April 2nd, and so we launched on April 2nd of, of 2014. Um, and we basically gave ourselves six weeks between when we sold the first, I think, 20 or so accounts uh, to when we then said, okay, this is a real thing. We went and onboarded service providers, uh, built the first version of the technology, and literally in six weeks we went from having nothing to having you know our first 20-ish you know, uh, customers up and running.
2: Yeah, so obviously products evolve and companies evolve how similar to uh, what Managed by Q looked like uh, when you sold it to WeWork, did it look like at the very beginning uh, in that first iteration?
1: Yeah, I mean, really different. Um, I mean, I think like at the core was like the problem that we were solving for an office manager, which was like, you know, they just wanted the space to <laughs> to run itself. And so the like, the most, um, uh, the sort of smallest unit of value there in the earliest days was actually just like delivering a better service on actually like the cleaning and maintenance of the space. And, you know, we use technology to improve communication and transparency of pricing and more granular management of the service. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, we realized pretty quickly that it's a person cleaning an office and that's, you know, how someone derives value. So I would say that was a piece of it, but as, as the business grew, we went from being sort of a first-party cleaning provider to being a marketplace of various service lines. So, you know, from just the cleaning to many different services. From being the person doing the service to being a market maker of services, and then the last piece was like just pure software. And so we had, you know, companies using our software in, uh, in Japan and all across Europe and in the Middle East uh, just to to manage the day-to-day operations, not actually connected to the underlying services. And so I would say we had acquired a French company uh, called Hive that kind of brought on the ticketing capability. So by the very end, um, you know, while there still was cleaning on the platform performed by our partners, the kind of totality of everything that we did to make it easy to run an office was, had had evolved a lot, but really based around this idea of like, how do you just make it easy to run an office for for a workplace team?
2: Yeah. So if I understand correctly, the product that you were selling at the very beginning was essentially a um, software interface on an ipad for Mm -hmm. the office manager to say hey we need paper towels or we need this cleaned and then that would kind of trigger a ticket to be created you guys would clean or you would fill the paper towels and then you started developing the vertically integrated services inside of that
1: yeah i mean the the cleaning was typically scheduled um but then there were other on-demand services in like the very early days, we had like, we were mounting an iPad on the wall and you could like FaceTime your account manager to ask for, it was like very sort of like kitschy futuristic and like uh, definitely there were, you know, moments along the way that I wished I didn't have like, literally like hundreds of iPads deployed in various office buildings in lower Manhattan that had to be like updated and version controlled and whatever, like it was a whole thing that we didn't really need to be in business of, of managing. However, I think early on, it really did help our customers to sort of like dream with us the vision for like, what does this futuristic office management service look like in a way that like, it would have hard to be, to get anyone's attention, just like entering the market, you know, to the conversation we were having earlier about acquiring versus starting a business, uh, as just another cleaning company, which mm-hmm. like to be blunt, we were, you know, <laughs> like that, that what if you, if you, if you asked my customer what they wanted, they would have said a cleaner office, uh, is, is, is pretty much
2: the case. Well, that may be the case, but, um, you know, i i found out about you through this, that New York times article that was talking about not really the software of managed by Q at all, but the actually like the cleaners themselves who, who are working for you and how you structured the organization. Um, and I really saw that as like a kind of futuristic take on work, especially in the janitorial space. So like you're developing the software and then at what point did you come up with the idea or why did you decide like, Hey, let's take this like cleaning business and let's make it into something where like people are getting paid more and here's why it makes sense financially. And here's why we think it's a good idea.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we, after like the first couple of months of being in the business, we kind of like, uh, saw the realities of running a service operation and it really you know this seems obvious now but it's like uh this isn't like you know uber where you push a button and like a cleaner shows up and there's a lot of bodies on the ground in that in that business just because the service quality always sucks and like you really have to solve for if you want to deliver the best service to your customer you need the best possible people uh to do the work and if you want the best possible people in like a pretty tight labor market uh you need to really like offer them something Uh, different as as an employer. And, you know, obviously, you're constrained in terms of what wages you can provide by what the market's willing to pay. But you can get creative about, you know, what does the whole package of employment look like, whether that's through benefits or through career development or through on the job training. Um, And I think like, you know, a pioneer in this space was Starbucks that really like reimagined what the, you know, the barista was like a cashier at you know prior to like uh the advent of starbucks and so the the blue bottles and every hipster coffee shop you know in every city stands on the shoulders of like this reimagining of what that role could be in an organization um and a lot of the uh the work that they have done uh and and a lot of the, this was like way back now but there was a woman named dervila hanley who was the head of strategy at starbucks and she worked on their stock option program and their program to be able to send their baristas back to school and really thought creatively about what is the product that you're offering to your employees to make it something that's attractive to them um, and differentiated if they're choosing between, you know, if they're looking at a bunch of job opportunities that all pay, uh, you know, give or take 25% above minimum wage, then like how would you differentiate yourself given sort of the wage constraints? And I, and that was like a pretty transformative approach, uh, and I, I met her because she used to work for uh, Matt Meeker, who was the founder of Barkbox, uh, the CEO of Barkbox uh, at Meetup, um, and she introduced me to a woman named Zanip Tone, who wrote a book called *The Good Job Strategy*, which you know that kind of became our bible uh, in terms of how we thought about operationalizing uh, good jobs and combining that with operational excellence to actually drive better financial results. And so the whole theory there is, if you just provide good jobs and you're not operationally excellent, you're gonna go out of business because you're gonna run out of money. Um, And if you're operationally excellent, but you aren't providing good jobs, you're gonna burn through employees. And so uh, you're also gonna struggle to compete. And it's really, you know, the companies that combine those two things. And she's got a bunch of companies that she studied in her book. She actually did a case study on us, which is on MIT Sloan's website. but when you combine those two things is where you get really incredible results for, for services businesses and in and retail in particular.
2: So I've read the article. So I have like a, a little bit of an idea of the differences between what other cleaning companies were offering their employees and what you guys were offering employees and how that made sense financially in the long term. Um, but for our listeners, would you mind giving an overview of those differences and then like how that made sense financially?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think you have to understand a little bit the um, the cost drivers of, of any business to understand sort of why investing in good jobs can or can't make sense in, in that particular business case. So I'll kind of like walk through um, a very dumbed down sort of like operating pro forma of, uh, you know, a janitorial business. Yeah. And so, you know, on your costs, um, besides just like, you know, the... The straight up like hourly labor cost and uh, hourly wage isn't going to change much, but it but there's other costs in the business. So you need to uh, recruit cleaners, and so you're paying on advertising to recruit recruit cleaners. You need to actually manage the recruitment process, which costs you know your internal resources and overhead. You need to then train them. You provide them with uniforms, and so you're spending a lot of money getting people in the door, and getting people productive, um, and then of course you're making you know margin on. On the wage, but on the and then on the customer side, um, you're paying a lot to acquire customers, um, and every time you lose a customer, that's like you know infinite lifetime er- earnings from that customer going out the door. And the biggest reason that customers uh, will leave you in a service business is you know the cleaner shows up, the cleaner does a bad job, the cleaner that they like doesn't work there anymore. And so you start to look at sort of like outside of just like the margin on the hourly wage and you think about, well, what are all these other drivers? So if you can pay a little bit more, but reduce the turnover, you're spending less to recruit, you're spending less to train, um, you're having customers turn over less frequently. So the lifetime value increases dramatically. Um, and then the other piece is in most service businesses, there's opportunity for, for upsell or cross sell. And so, you know, in a cleaning business, it might be, that they want their carpet shampooed and that's a higher margin job. And you know, if they love the cleaner and they have a relationship with them, they're gonna to come to you for that versus go on uh, you know, Yelp or Google or whatever to find someone. Or like the cross-sell, the cleaner's really good and, and loves their job and cares about their clients. And they notice that like the hinge on the boardroom door is squeaking and they report it to their supervisor. The supervisor might then go back to the client and say, hey, do you want to send us to send someone in to fix the door? And that's another like, high- and so, you know you have this like virtuous cycle of like the cleaners engaged the clients sticking around the client's buying more from you versus from anybody else and you don't have to retrain uh, and rehire the cleaner the opposite of that is the vicious cycle where you pay as little as possible you're paying a ton of money to get people in the door they're not sticking around so you're spending more on that and then your clients aren't sticking around and they're certainly not like buying upsells from you and so the whole model gets sort of like thrown out of whack and and that was sort of our bet early on and like uh having run the experiment for many years i can say like uh it really works like you know sort of above and beyond our expectations um it's definitely like an investment and requires like uh you know a lot of commitment to it you kind of have to to get after it and stay after it because if you're just paying more in wages but you're not training people to do the you know to retain customers or whatever uh that's bad, you know. That's like you're not operationally excellent, and you're spending more on wages. You're not going to perform well. Um, but the model really, you know, does work when you manage the business well.
0: I want to get in. I I, I was just going to ask that follow up question. You know, did, did the theory hold in your case? You you obviously answered the question uh, that it did, but. I want to dig into the other piece as well. What does it mean to be operationally excellent? Like, Let's let's get into that. Um, because I think a lot of folks that listen to the podcast will probably recognize, like, if you can pay your employees more to keep them around and to have a more stable, uh, productive labor force, um, it, it makes it a lot easier to sort of build off of that base. Even, even though, you know, up front, it looks kind of like an investment. Okay, I'm paging higher wages, you know, but there are a lot of qualitative effects there. But what does it mean to be operationally uh, effective, um, you know, the service businesses to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, the most basic explanation is like, are you consistently delivering at or above the expectations of your stakeholders? And and I would say stakeholders would include your, uh, employees, uh, your customers and your investors. And probably that's the right order because, Uh, If your employees aren't satisfied with, you you know, you were meeting your commitments to them, they're not going to serve your customers well. And if your employee, your customers aren't satisfied, they're not coming back to you. They're not going to like, It's not going to be very good for the pro forma of the business. And, and then lastly, you know, if your investors aren't happy, uh, you know, you're going to have trouble doing what you need to do to grow as a business. But if you're Uh, employees are happy, your customers are probably going to be happy, and if your customers are happy, your investors are probably going to be happy. So it's like really kind of like meeting all those commitments to your stakeholders consistently over time is is sort of like, uh, you know, definitionally operational excellence. There's probably a lot more that you could dive into on each one of those, but that's how I think about it
2: at a high level. I've got some just tactical questions on the service side. How are you guys selling to new customers?
1: Um, We have, so I mean, we, I'll take kind of like, the business went through like multiple different iterations. And so it it changed over time. But uh, I would say high level, we had um, a very high performing inside sales operation um, led by a guy named Chris Thompson. Um, And so we had a mix of you know, SDRs and account executives, um, SDR setting meetings, AEs, you know, closing, um, and then account an account management structure, kind of managing on client relationships. And then we had a really amazing marketing organization uh, led by a woman named Sarah Quirk. And I think, you know, we had a really clear point of view, which was we knew our customer really well, and we wanted to be the people who, you know, created community for the office manager. So... Uh, we would host events. We had an annual office manager appreciation week competition, and we drove a lot of inbound through, like, really celebrating our, our customer and then also providing uh, her, it was usually a woman, but not always, um, providing her with uh, the tools to do her job better. So um, we really built a really great content repository around, you know, an office move checklist or how to create the budget for snacks in your office or, you know, the things that that, that person was thinking about to do their job better and making sure that we were always the place that they were turning to when they, when they had a need, um, uh, and kind of being their trusted partner and the business ended up more or less being 50, 50 inbound and outbound sort of over the life of the business, really good referral action, you know, office managers move companies. They want to take their vendors with them, that type of stuff. Um, and then we had a strategy around selling sort of like within a building, um, which was also pretty fruitful as well. And that was
2: better for us operationally. Yeah, definitely. Um, can you walk through like from a deal closing to onboarding a customer and then, um, like what it would look like once you have, uh, service workers, like in the door?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, and so this is like going way back there in time. So, uh, (laughs) but for the last like, um, three or four years of the business, we were fully a marketplace. So all of our first party operations were transitioned to partners. So we weren't directly managing it, but, um, I mean, typically the way it would work was we would close an account so they could sign up fully online. We had like, you know, a widget to kind of set their schedule and give them an estimate. They would kind of confirm the estimate and the schedule and then, um, pick a date to start service. Um, there was, you know, when we were actually doing the direct service, there was some exchange of keys because we needed access to the building. And then, yeah, there would be like a supervisor who was responsible for a geographic area and sort of a set of accounts. They were responsible for training and onboarding any new service provider to the account, but otherwise a service provider would would own their account and sort of hold it down. We had a mobile app that we built for uh, the field workforce that, They would use that to check into the account. It was geofenced, so we would know if they were there. We would know if they left. They would have a task list that was designed by the client um, to mark off all the tasks that were completed or indicate if they were not able to complete a task. So pretty high fidelity of of operational data generated by the tools that we built. I would say, in hindsight, some of that was kind of like overbuilding, like it actually wasn't that helpful and maybe was distracting to to getting the job done. Um, But yeah, that's sort of the... The scope of things that we that we built and used to manage the operation.
0: Was when you the, say,
2: oh, sorry, go ahead, Ben.
0: Well, I was just gonna. I was just gonna ask. Was the vision always to build a marketplace of services, or was it to build sort of a tech-enabled service company? I mean,
1: from the very beginning, the vision was to like solve the problem for the customer, and I don't think we had like too much of an opinion about like how we would get that done. I think over time, we realized. I would say the first realization was like we actually needed to tightly control the operations to deliver like the best possible experience. And then as we built all of the software and actually were able to instrument the operations with software, we realized that we could operate somewhere, you know, somewhere between a first-party service company and like, you know, a franchiser or, or a, a master contractor by giving the tools to run the business to our third-party partners and actually having some amount of visibility into. You know, their customer communications, how they were pricing, how the work was being performed. and so we ended up in sort of a hybrid world that gave us the ability to scale aggressively with leveraging existing third-party supply but also managing the quality and also managing you know the uh, certain requirements around wages, benefits, workers compensation, making sure that all of the things that we had hard learned in our own business we're being followed by our partners and, and we found partners that were excited about doing that
0: so you it, it sounded like you kind of at, at the very end you guys were sort of giving the software tool to the the office management teams maybe not so much necessarily being the the first party um, servicer but at least giving them the tool to solve their problem that they had to, to you know in terms of just running their office day to day
1: yeah, and also we were managing um, the third-party service providers, so we were also like working with, you know, a local cleaning company in Los Angeles or in San Francisco or whatever. They were using our software to manage their business, so all of the like quoting, invoicing, payments, everything was done on our platform, and so we had the benefit of, you know, helping improve their operational uh, efficiency, and then also the customer got the benefit of everything, you know, functioning on their platform.
2: Did it become exponentially harder to control the service delivery once you brought in partners to perform the services or was it like not that hard of a transition?
1: Um, you know, actually like I would say the, um, the most unintuitive lesson, we did a really good job for many years running our own service operation, but I think we got like a little bit, um, uh, we, we convinced ourselves that it had to be that way. And when we found the right partners, it was actually way easier to work with people that, you know, these are like trades professionals. They've been doing it literally for generations. They run really good operations. I think we realized we're good at like, you know, building software at like the branding and marketing and customer acquisition and customer service, and we could help them on that stuff. But when it came to actually like running, um, you know, an arms and legs operation, we had partners who were like right under our nose the whole time, who were able to like really deliver against our customer expectations if, if we collaborated with them. And I think if we had done anything differently, probably would have done that earlier on versus trying to do everything ourselves in every market. But yeah, we have to really choose the right partners. And I think like you know, it also it, it all starts with values because you know the way we built our business, caring about how our workers were treated, how our customers were treated, um, and not everybody in the services business cares about those things. That's just like the fact of life. And w- But when you find people that do, um, you know, everything is very easy.
0: Was the minimum bar for sort of, you know, picking those partners? Was that obviously part of the reason why you guys chose to go with a specific partner? Um, obviously operational excellence, excellence as well. But just curious, after you guys started to scale outside of just your own services.
1: Yeah, I mean, we had depending on um we had like subject matter experts on our team that were responsible for partner management and we had different criteria for every category that we would vet against um you know which included a whole host of different um different requirements
2: correct me if i'm wrong but it almost sounds like managed by q started out as a software product evolved into a Tech enabled service and then evolve back into a pure software product?
1: Yeah, I think that's like uh, probably right directionally. Um, And I think like part of what my learning was through all of that is um, it doesn't really matter where the lines are drawn. It's about like what is the commitment that you're making to the customer and who's responsible. And so, you know, if the customer perceives me as being responsible for cleaning quality, uh, and they're paying through my platform. doesn't really matter like who's actually doing the work. Um, you know, from a customer's perspective, I'm responsible. Um, and I think we're technology, and you know, you see this with like Uber and stuff, but there's there's lots of other examples um, where technology is really changing the degrees of operational control you can have without being like the actual uh, manager. And this has, this can like be a good thing. It can also be like, you know, a, a bad thing where you have like uh, th- these kind of scheduling uh, scandals where like the automated scheduling software is producing like horrible schedules for workers because nobody's <laughs> actually looking at it. That's like the negative effect. I think on the positive side, um, you know, if you're someone, if you are a franchiser, you have a hell of a lot more control about like what goes on the menu and how things are marketed and whatever using software than you did back, you know, it's amazing that, you know, McDonald's or whoever, you know, pre the internet were managing the level of consistency and quality across all of those locations without any tech to instrument it. And you can imagine now, you know, anyone could achieve that uh, level of consistency because like the ability to kind of m- monitor uh, and perform through technologies is
2: is is, uh, is pretty crazy. I would love to move into the next phase, um, kind of the last like six months at managed by Q and kind of understand that story if you're okay. Um, talking about that, Ben, did you have anything about like the operations of managed by Q that you wanted to touch on before we moved on?
0: Well, I only actually had a couple, couple more questions, uh, before we get to sort of the sales process, if you don't mind. Um, I'm just curious how the contracts were structured for the building owners,
1: yeah. So we, we contracted directly with the tenant. So we really like, we weren't selling directly to the buildings. That was sort of a, it considered strategy, the sales cycle, the tenant was faster. Um, it definitely, it definitely precluded us from certain, you know, um, work because some buildings are full service. Um, but yeah, we worked directly with the tenant. Um, they could, you know, typically they were able to opt out, you know, 30 day out. We didn't want, we didn't want people locked into long contracts. That was like, Part of what we felt like we were selling against was people being in sort of these like predatory contracts, and so in the early days, you know, it was like you're basically like paying by the hour, you can cancel any time, kind of a thing, just to be as as customer friendly. That evolved a little bit over time because people, you know, would prefer to sign a longer contract to get a discount or whatever. But um, we contracted directly with the tenants.
0: Did did you guys ever it sounded like you may have considered selling to more like landlords on a portfolio basis if if it didn't work out or just didn't seem to be a good fit why well, I'd be curious why
1: Yeah um there's an agency problem when you're dealing with like the landlord versus the tenant and like that is the office manager is responsible for the happiness of the people in the space and the property manager like really doesn't give a shit unless something like terrible is happening and they're interested in like they're passingly interested in the potential to like have a rev share on upsells, but otherwise they're they're kind of like uh, definitionally rent seeking. Like they, uh, this is their kingdom, you cannot work in it, like, and they are not gonna change the service quality until it's like literally losing them tenants. And so what you see is like tenant, and this is why like WeWork and the like have been so successful is because they're like, you know, sort of a cutout inside of a commercial property where they've managed to a really high standard. Um, and so, yeah, like I, the reason it didn't work is because the property manager is like literally just looking at their what is it costing them, and I would say pre you know flex workspace if someone's in a ten year lease like they're not leaving over the cleaning if it gets like terrible the, the the property manager will change them out but like you just the incentives weren't quite right for them to do anything but pay the bare minimum and to work with the people that they've known for a hundred years you know regardless of how bad the user experience is.
0: Yeah, you could have said one word, and that was incentives. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, last question, and then we can, we can head to the next section. But, you know, are there any, any other industries uh, where you might be able to, you know, apply a similar, you know, <clears throat> higher pay structure, sort of marketplace type approach that you guys took or a tech enabled approach? I'm curious if you've, if you've thought about any other industries um, or particular pain points that might be interesting uh, out there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think for people who have the appetite to manage large services business, like, you know, home services is still such a massive growing fragmented market with like very few really well run and managed kind of like, uh, uh, you know, integrated operations. It's still mostly like onesie twosies and like, it's really hard to do, but I think that like the, the upside is tremendous because you, you know, you build customer loyalty, people refer you um, and they're, you know, so I think that field is still pretty wide open and you could go, you know, name a trade. There's like uh, whether it's like HVAC, electrical, like there's like within each one of those trades, I think there's like great businesses to be built and people are building great businesses. I think the question is like, at what scale does it make sense to actually be building software? And that's something I would definitely like, there's so many great SaaS tools. And so you can get a lot done using existing software. You can kind of build, you know, no code tools using existing platforms. And I would say before, like if I was doing it all over again, I wouldn't have built, you know, half the stuff that we built and really think about what actually creates sort of unique value for the customer. But I think around like the innovation and employment practices and really just like investing in the workforce, like Literally any category of service work, I think that that can be done, and I think you know it's it certainly um, is done on, on a small scale. I know one of the cases that Zanep has is um, exterminators, which is another one where it's like uh, you know all these trades are desperate for workers, uh, and they literally the limiting factor to their growth is 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 trained and retained workers. There's a lot of poaching in the services now, so I think that's like a huge area where people can differentiate.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. And uh totally agree. Would you mind telling us the story of uh the sales process to WeWork?
1: Um Yeah, so I mean I had known Adam and Miguel for a number of years before we ended up actually entertaining the offer uh to, to get acquired. Um and you know they had made an offer in the past and it just like the timing wasn't right for us. It wasn't uh it wasn't an exciting offer for us. And I think like all M&A, um, all good M&A is, is usually like the culmination of, of like long relationships. So we'd known each other for a while. We kind of knew what we were getting ourselves into. Um, and they were at a really exciting inflection point in the business. And obviously, you know, the story is is pretty public now in terms of like what didn't go right. But for us as a team, you know, we were looking at sort of the, the future path for our business. We were in the market to raise um another uh, significant financing and kind of looking at the paths ahead of us, we had the opportunity to raise more capital, um, but we also had the opportunity to sell uh, to WeWork at a really attractive price and to be part of this like really big kind of generational story. And for what we were doing, I think one of the things we realized is like, if you really wanted to make it easier on an office, you just like run the office on behalf of the <laughs> of the office manager. And so we we slotted into the, the kind of, uh, the strategy that they were pursuing we added a ton of value. Um, and I would say even you know despite the outcome, I still think it was like a really great uh, deal for us. I think actually really great for them in terms of what we brought to the table. Um, and you know if we had had a little more time to play things out, I think it could have been uh, pretty transformative. But um, yeah, I don't know if there's any specific detail that's interesting, but I would say high level, uh, we had been in touch with them for a while, we slotted in really nicely to their strategy. There was an opportunity for all of us to kind of play on a bigger field. uh, And it just made sense.
2: Yeah. Um, So when did that happen?
1: Uh, We sold in April of 2019.
2: Cool. And then you joined WeWork as head of Corp Dev.
1: Yeah. And and the ventures platform. So the
2: CEOs of the other acquired companies rolled up to me as well. Nice. And then, um, you also, did you oversee the, did you say you oversaw the creator fund as well? Yeah. I would love to hear about how like your experience as an operator impacted your experience, experience as an investor, just because I know you, I, I think you did some investing before managed by Q um, and maybe like what you learned by building and growing managed by Q and then maybe how you, some of your perspectives on investing changed uh, afterwards. Yeah. I mean,
1: um,
2: Uh, I'm going to butcher this quote, but David
1: Stern, uh, who is no longer with us, but was the NBA commissioner, was an investor managed by Q and became a friend. And he spoke at the company once and he said a thing that I uh, will never forget. although probably won't remember exactly, which is like, you are not what you set out to be. What you are is the sum total uh, of the way that you react to things that you couldn't have possibly anticipated or even imagined. It's roughly what he said. And I think like the biggest learning as an operator was that, which is like, nobody does the thing, you know, verbatim that they set out to do. Um, but what they do is the sum total of everything that they react to and all these different circumstances. And so I think like the biggest learning for me has been when you are investing at an early stage, you are investing in, uh, in a little bit in the insight, is the insight interesting, is the end market interesting, but really, it's like it's the person and is this someone that you want to bet on to respond to things uh, that, you know, you couldn't possibly anticipate. And that's I think it's it's the hardest thing to get right also just because it takes time and it's really hard to get to know someone in a short period of time. But I think like uh, I would say and everyone, every investor will say kind of it's all about people. But I think having been through the trials and tribulations of being an operator and seeing how much that matters, I think it's something I, I index on probably more than others.
0: Dan, are you able to maybe walk through any of the case studies um, from a strategic perspective? It sounds like, you know, while you were at WeWork that you were more so on the, um, you know, on the M&A side and and it sounded like, you know, a lot of their acquisitions that WeWork made were were strategic in nature. Um, Can you just kind of walk through some of the differences if there are any or what they are between just a pure, like, you know, placing bets versus like, okay, we're going to we're going to buy this because it definitely is tangential to the office uh space and um you know sort of the vision that we're trying to execute on um just just maybe comment on that a little bit
1: yeah um so i can kind of there's two different strategies that we're going on so like one for example uh, that um you know flatiron school had a few very successful acquisitions um that were you know, quite literally bolting on a course that they didn't have. So we did one uh, called SecureSet, I believe, in the um, cybersecurity space. And there was another one they had did right before I joined um, in in the UX design space. And so those were kind of like, you know, pure play product line extension, being able to add sort of like additional courses. I would say pretty low risk, relatively like known upside. Um, And then on the other side, you know, we had done a few acquisitions in sort of the workspace management category, not even like the managed by Q stuff, but more like real like enterprise workplace management. So they had acquired a firm called Team, which did room booking and visitor management. They acquired a company called Space IQ, which was uh, an integrated workplace management solution. Um, and Shiva, who was the chief product officer, was leading a team that was really responsible for bringing those pieces together to become sort of the OS for the enterprise workplace. And I would say that was like, you know, a much bigger, more transformative, more long-term bet that really would have like uh, had a transformative effect of bringing sort of the world's commercial spaces onto our platform in a totally different way. Uh, Visitor management and room booking uh, and uh, spatial sensors and really kind of like this, you know, next generation OS for, for the workplace that um, I think we kind of ran out of time to, to execute on pulling all those pieces together, but uh, the team, you know, had some some pretty exciting ideas for what they wanted to do there, and I think, you know, it was an example of a more uh, disruptive sort of long-shot investment that, that could have added significant long-term value to the platform. Um, so th- that's sort of like the spread of the types of, of stuff we were working on there.
0: So... As a a real estate guy, you know, my background is in real estate development. I am just fascinated uh, by sort of the WeWork saga, if you will. And I would just love to kind of hear from somebody, you know, you're obviously, or were an insider, I would just love to kind of hear what the emotion was like, you know, going from, you know, you sell out to WeWork, then you sort of have the... um, you know the debacle. We'll just call it debacle. uh, in, in fall of 2019, but now here we are again. And WeWork is going public via SPAC. Uh, you know, just maybe talk about sort of the ups and downs of you know being in a company, a private company like that, um, and maybe any lessons that you've learned, you know, while while with WeWork uh, for the for the short stint that you were there.
1: Yes. So I mean, I think like. In terms of like the the ups and downs, like I think seeing that you know the the new management has sort of uh, gotten gotten their act together and is, is getting ready to take the company public through, through SPAC, and the SPAC stock is trading well. Like none of that's surprising to me. I think like the thing that I was so sold on about WeWork is WeWork had stronger product market uh, and a stronger brand than basically any business I'd ever worked on or, or really had seen, and. None of that changed through kind of the the troubles as we 'll call them um, you know n- none of that changed and from a customer 's perspective, like you know there were some uh, there were some misses around the edges, but still we work always had the best product in the market, but always had the best brand, um, and really by and large always did right by their their customers and so it's not surprising to me that they're doing really well now, obviously like, you know, some right sizing on the valuation and, you know, a little bit of uh, air coming out of the balloon, but you know, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, in the not so distant future, uh, you know, the valuation uh, gets back to sort of some of the crazier numbers from, from the last few years. It's not going to happen overnight, but I do think there's, there is a massive category defining business to be built there. And and we work as sort of the likely winner, in my opinion, and obviously a lots going to depend on, management decisions going forward um, but the foundation is is strong notwithstanding sort of all the cleanup that had to be done in, in the last year um, and yeah going through it like yeah it was like the craziest thing I had ever seen <laughs> uh, uh, and I think like you know emotions run hot you see who people really are um, and I think like you know in those times you just try and operate with with your own personal decorum and integrity and take care of your people and you know I, as you, you may have seen sort of some of the the stuff that went down with managed by Q on the way out. And I think like, I felt really good that I type people and you know, we're all still really close. I still work with a lot of them on new businesses. Um, and I think, you know, those are, those are the, the times that try men's souls. Like you got to really keep your own head on, show up for your people um, and not kind of get lost in the, in, in the craziness. Cause I think it, it is e- easy for people to kind of lose their own center and their own compass when so much crazy stuff is going on
0: no doubt well i mean from again for for someone who is uh it was in commercial real estate in the office development world um y- you know there's a lot of questions surrounding sort of the office place post pandemic is it going to be a you know on the one side of the continuum it's everyone's coming back to the office as business as usual nothing happened it's just a sort of a uh a vacation, really a work from home vacation. And then on the other side, you have people who just think that, you know, remote work is the future. And no one's going back to the office. My opinion is sort of somewhere in between uh, a a hybrid model, maybe a decreased um, square footage, but I would love to kind of hear it from your perspective. Like, where do you see the office world going? Is it more flex space? Is we work perfectly positioned? Or is we work, you know, going to struggle in the new normal? Like, like, what's your take there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like the sort of uh, the irony is that we work is perfectly positioned for for either reality. I think the thing that's probably not going to go back to the way it was is that nobody's trying to sign these like and this was already happening. I think just being accelerated. But these like, you know, five, 10 year lease obligations when their space needs are just totally unknown. Like I think a lot of people just got out of long term leases and I think very few people are going back to them. And so. From that perspective, like, WeWork is very well situated to kind of manage that uh, shorter turn, higher turnover demand for space. Um, in terms of, like, where people locate, whether it's, you know, in big cities or remotely, yeah, I think, like, your your hypothesis is probably right, that, like, it'll be a bit of a mixed bag. I think some companies will be remote first, but I think most of those people are going to want to go into offices. You know, if anyone who's been on Zoom calls with their colleagues who have, uh dogs barking and and kids knocking things over and whatever it's like it hasn't been like a really like <laughs> harmonious working environment for most for most people who don't have like huge houses with you know home offices and everything and even those who do i think people just like to get out of the house and away from their family uh, so that they can enjoy them when they come home and are not working but not be nagged by them all day so my sense is uh, you know, whether or not people return to city is like, I don't know, but regardless of where they are, they're going to want to be in an office. And I think, you know, WeWork and their peers are very well positioned to capitalize on that. Um, I think like, I think the cities are going to make and it's already you're already started to see parts of it, but I think the narratives around cities being dead, you know, this happens, uh, <laughs> this, the narrative happens constantly and cities like New York City never die. And, you know, already seeing the life starting to come back to the city, I think people are going to be very wrong about, you know, where talent wants to be and if people want to be in an office together again.
0: Those are good points. My my, my thoughts are very similar uh, around that. I want to move to sort of what you're doing day to day now. What are you up to um, just besides the angel investing or is that sort of soaking up all of your time these days?
1: Um, yeah, well, the angel investing... And along with the advisory, they're kind of like, they kind of go hand in glove. So there's a, you know, across uh, four companies that I'm advising, um, there's like a dozen or so folks that used to work for me um, uh, at Managed by Q that are just amazing individuals, people I love working with, um, that I now have the opportunity to kind of partner with in their new ventures. And so that's been really uh, just kind of like an awesome kind of logical next step for me. Um, but yeah, I would say spending most of my time investing in new businesses, um, and then, uh, in a pretty hands-on advisory capacity with, uh, with a few companies, um, and, uh, trying to spend a little bit more time reading and writing and thinking because, you know, operating is just kind of like grueling and heads down. So I've been enjoying having a little bit more flexibility in my life as well.
0: Yeah. I enjoyed your, your piece on, uh, on the logistics industry. Uh, the feature that you wrote. It was a really, really solid piece. I'll be sure to, to link to that uh, in the newsletter when we when we share the episode.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that type of stuff, like I just never had time to think about anything other than office services, which frankly is not the most interesting business in the world. So um, yeah, it's been nice to, to be uh, intellectually promiscuous
2: again. Do you think you'll ever start another company?
1: Um, I think probably in some form or fashion, I mean, honestly, with with a lot of the advisory stuff, it kind of feels like I already am. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just not, uh, not in, the, not in the hot seat. Um, I'm kind of like working my way back up. You know, the the human memory is a fascinating thing. We have a way of just like forgetting trauma, and so I think I'm I've almost been outing, out of operating for long enough that it feels like a good idea again. Because like, if you could actually remember accurately. Uh, <laughs> all those experiences probably nobody would start a second company, but everyone seems to do it um, and I'm drawn to operating like I love to I love you know love building teams leading teams um, but it is it does take a toll and it does have like pretty significant trade-offs with you know being able to to travel and relax and you know do things that you know you might otherwise like to do in life so i'm <laughs> I'm consciously taking a little time off because uh, once I'm back in it, you know, um, I tend to be pretty all in.
0: From your experiences in, in angel investing thus far, like, have you noticed trends in your investing? Like do they cluster around certain spaces and if so, you know, why?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I try to like make my investing sort of a manifestation of my values and sort of the world I want to live in and, and the people I want to back. And so, um, I would say broadly, the categories I invest in are uh, along the lines of economic empowerment, uh, and so like you know tools that help people to start businesses, help small small businesses to grow, uh, help people to educate themselves and increase their earning potential. Um, so like economic empowerment is one, broadening access, so you know low cost products and services, making life uh, easier for for working people, um, building tools for frontline workers. And then the last one is is around climate and sustainability, which has been a long-held passion of mine. Um, and so, yeah, within the kind of climate sustainability bucket, we've also built a bit of a practice area around um, foods and next generation um, proteins, both uh, synth- synthetic and organic uh, proteins. Um, uh, and yeah, so Future of Food has been another kind of focus area. But it's fun we get to like uh i, I have a partner who uh, I've, I've worked with for many years and so we are learning constantly and, and able to kind of back people that we're excited about we can use sort of investments as ways to learn more about new categories um and you know that's like feels like a pretty uh, privileged way to be able to spend sort of this <laughs> this kind of weird year of, of spending a lot of time indoors
2: yeah dan you you mentioned a second ago that um you've been enjoying uh being out of the weeds a little bit and just doing a little bit of reading and writing. So, um, I'm always looking for a book recommendation. Uh, anything you've read in the last year or so that's, that's been really great that you'd recommend.
1: Um, what would I recommend? I just finished a book called these truths by Jill Lepore, which is like a pretty, pretty robust history uh, of the United States, which, um, which I thought was really good. It's i would say, a pretty important read for for the times that we're living in um with regards to sort of uh uh racial equity in in the country and and uh it's a big read and it's like very comprehensive and sort of dense historical text but uh, i thought that was a good one um i've been reading uh the uh walter isaacson's ben franklin biography which uh i'm just loving I'm, i had I, for some reason hadn't read it but i'm both a fan of walter isaacson and ben <laughs> franklin so um, yeah, that's been, that's been really fun.
2: Yeah, those, those both sound great. I'm also a huge fan of, um, uh, Walter Isaacson and there's a great, um, there's a great podcast of him and, uh, Michael Lewis. Uh, I can't, I think it's on Tim Ferriss, but, uh, both those guys are awesome, awesome writers. And I, they went to the same high school in new Orleans, which was pretty interesting. Um, next, uh, next one of these final questions, what does doing business the right way mean to you? Um, there's a, uh,
1: uh Tim O'Reilly has a, a, a quote that I've has always stuck with me, which is a business is just a context for doing interesting things. Um, and I think like, for me, it's just always been about, can you align your life and your values to your business and just make business the canvas where you express your values? And when you're doing that and you're doing it with people that you love, it's like never feels like work. It's always fun. You'd do it if they didn't pay you for it. Um, and You know that to me feels like feels like the right way
2: Mm -hmm. and then just final question um are there any personal habits or practices that you're dedicated to that help keep you physically fit or mentally fit or just that you enjoy doing
1: um yeah i mean nothing that unique i try and exercise every day for like at least an hour um I surf a lot, so I've been trying to get to places where I'm able to surf during the pandemic. I was actually living out in Rockaway Beach in New York, which was great. Um, just love being in the water. It's also like the one place I can't have my phone or any connected device. So it sort of serves as like uh, meditation and exercise. Um, and then back in the city, I, I just run because uh, it helped me clear my clear my head. And, and you know, I always feel uh, more comfortable confident more secure more uh mentally active when i'm when i've exercised and pretty much anytime i'm in a bad mood i realize it's just i just haven't exercised um, <laughs> and then I, I typically write um i did uh, i actually started the pandemic doing the artist's way which is like a pretty famous old book of kind of writing prompts kind of geared towards creatives um, and uh, one of the practices of The Artist's Way is uh, morning pages, which is just kind of writing for, uh, I think it's three long form pages every morning, no matter no matter what it is. Um, but she has like prompts for every day. Um, and I got into a habit of doing morning pages, um, just kind of writing whatever's on my mind every day. And that's been like a really good way to kind of uh, process my thoughts and also just see patterns and things that keep coming up for me are there. Uh, problems that keep coming up that I just need to deal with? Or are there ideas that keep coming up that I need to spend more time with? Um, and it sort of like keeps me keeps me accountable. And also, you know, some someday when they can upload it and create a simulation of my life, it'll be nice to, to relive as an old man.
0: Well, Dan, we asked this this last question to every to every guest. And I feel like you're going to have an interesting answer. But what business has not been started yet, but should be?
1: Oh, it's a good one. I mean, I would say a theme that I'm thinking about a lot right now, um, this is actually like part of why I was reading the Ben Franklin book uh, is, you know, the, there is a, a tremendous lack of uh, skilled industrial workers in this country. And, you know, whether it's through an infrastructure uh, investment or through reshoring uh, manufacturing critical industries, um, there's just going to be like this crazy rise in demand for for skilled Uh, industrial workers and welding, HVAC, mechanical, electrical, uh, carpenters, mill workers, people that can do stuff with their hands. Um, And, and those trades have, you know, the average worker in those trades is over the age of 45. You know, my father's a carpenter. um, And I think we are, we already have a crazy shortage of of skilled workers. uh, And I think that's, you know, we're in for a real, <laughs> a real shock once some of these folks start aging out, and you have this increase in demand. And so, a business I've been thinking about a lot, and, and, and talking to some folks about, is really like how do you, how do you repossession, reposition, reposition um, industrial skills training in a way that doesn't feel kind of like your, uh, you know, uh, high school uh, shop program that uh, doesn't really merchandise to people what an incredible career you can have in the trades, and doesn't kind of get the same attention and investment that for your education. Has and I think like you know to 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 the detriment of of this country and to a lot of people that could have built you know really great gratifying family sustaining careers in the trades, um, but they're just not marketed to people as as something that should be celebrated. And I think that that's wrong. Um, so I don't know exactly what the business is yet. I'll let you know. But um, you know I think there's some really interesting parallels to what's going on with with um, you know uh, software engineering and kind of new trades education, uh, and I think there's probably interesting ways to apply some of those principles to, to getting more people into the skilled trades. And those are also the jobs that aren't going to get automated. I think a lot of customer service, marketing, sales is likely to get automated well before um, you know, the guy who comes in and services your boiler.
0: Dan, it's very interesting you say that. We've spoken to just a range of different guests from technology to people who are actually in the trades and own trades businesses uh, and sort of everybody in between. And that answer has come up Quite a few times. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, and I'm starting to kind of see a pattern here. So but that's an interesting, interesting answer. But uh, thanks for coming on tonight. It was a it was a great conversation. And I feel like we learned a lot. Um, you know, admittedly, I would say technology and, and startups are, is not my background. So I feel like I was lucky to you know have the opportunity to, to talk with you and, and hear your backstory. And uh, I'm excited to, to publish uh, this episode. So thanks so much for for coming on. Yeah, thanks for here again. My pleasure. Thanks, thanks so much for, for listening to the Circle of, uh, of Competence podcast. Good luck as you to get up, uh, like your, uh, go to more episodes like this one. Go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investors journey. Thanks again for listening.